that's when legitimate physiological shock sets in. All the questions start flooding your brain and then he wasn't able to answer much. And we just went out to the car and I think our first question was just like, how, how on earth are we going to talk to our children about this? This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to help us make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. Hello, Maine Biz listeners. This is Andrea Tetzlaff with the Maine Biz podcast team. Today, I'm going to be talking with Trevor Maxwell, founder of Man Up to Cancer. Trevor uh, had been telling people stories for years, first as a journalist and later through his PR company, Maxwell Media. When Trevor was diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer, he was battling some pretty severe depression and started to look for support only to realize that many people and men specifically really struggled in asking for help or sharing their needs. Men were tough and didn't need support. Trevor is going to talk with us today about starting Man Up to Cancer to show that seeking support and asking for help is the tough or manly thing to do. He's also going to talk about how he's setting Man Up to Cancer up for long-term success and why the wolf pack mentality is so important to his company. So Trevor, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Yeah. Thanks, Andrea. Um, just really happy to spend some time with you. Thanks for the invite. So yeah, my name's Trevor Maxwell. I'm 45 years old now. Not sure how that happened. I am from Maine. I actually grew up in North Yarmouth and Cumberland, went to uh, Greeley High School. So spent most of my life in Maine. I, I went out to college at University of Iowa, bounced around as a newspaper reporter for several years at different places. And then my wife and I, we both wanted to come back to Maine. And so came back to Maine to raise a family and we have two amazing daughters. I have Sage, who is 16. She's a junior at Cape Elizabeth High School. And Elsie is a freshman. She's 14. So really the biggest, the biggest thing that I want people to know about me is that I'm a very proud husband and dad and um, just a family guy. So you and your wife are both boomerangers. That seems to be the term now. Totally boomerangers. So you went out to Iowa for college, you said. What did you study while you were there? So I went there because I was interested in, in writing and poetry and possibly in journalism. And, and that's what I really ended up doing is getting into the journalism program and studying journalism and English and had and then spent a good 15 years working in daily newspapers. So what was it about journal? It sounds like journalism and sort of storytelling early on was an interest of yours. What was it about storytelling that really appealed to you? I just loved sharing stories and hearing other people's stories and spending time with them really sitting down or getting so getting in someone's environment and spending time with them and then telling a story that maybe they they don't even see themselves but honoring their experience through storytelling was something that always just really appealed to me and and meeting people from all different walks of life and and different backgrounds and so then you say you and your wife returned back to Maine. Was there an impetus that brought you back to Maine or just we wanted to come back to Maine? Pretty much that. I think we kind of knew all along that we wanted to be close to family. Like we kind of ultimately wanted to settle here. And, and we had the chance to do that in the early 2000s. My, my wife is an educator. She got a job um, in a classroom as a teacher. And I took a job. Um, at, well, first, I took a job at the Lewiston Sun Journal for a couple of years as a writer. 
And then I got a job at the Portland Press Herald, which is uh, kind of what took me through to the end of my <laughs> journalism career. So it, when you were in that journalism career, were there certain stories or beats that you were covering that you particularly enjoyed? Yeah. So I started off really as like a generalist kind of, I, I really was trying to do long form journalism, narrative storytelling. And that, I, I really loved that. And then as my career sort of went on, I had the opportunity to, to be the courts reporter at the Press Herald, which was covering <laughs> high profile court cases, some civil stuff, some really interesting civil cases, but oftentimes I'd be sitting there for the gruesome crime stories. And, and I know sort of everyone follows them. And I would try to, you know, I, so I approached the courts beat just from a storytelling perspective and just trying to like, to again, like honor those experiences of, the, of these people who are involved in these really difficult situations. And then you started your own company. Yeah. So journalism changed so much between like 2000 when I graduated from Iowa and, and 2011. And the biggest change that kind of prompted me to go out on my own and do something different was that that long form, the opportunities to do long form narratives, the opportunities to really spend a lot of time with your subjects kind of just evaporated. And so my desire to really spend time with subjects and really learn about them and process that and translate that into something that was I could be proud of, that kind of disappeared. Also, it became so, like so consuming. I I listen to my colleagues every day have to call home and be like, I can't go to the concert or I can't go to the sports game because I'm just in the office. I got to finish this. So I just got to the point where I, my kids were little at that point. It was 2011. Like they were six and four. And I'm like, I got to carve out something where I can be more involved in their stuff. So I started Maxwell Media, which is just a one person, you know, just me um, <laughs> doing freelance work. So public relations, communications, different writing things, different, you know, communications activities for different clients. And I did that from 2011 to 2018, which is when I got diagnosed with cancer. And so in Maxwell Media, though, you were still telling stories. It sounds like yeah. you were still, you, it just, it might not have been news stories, but you were still telling company stories or your client stories. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had the great opportunity to work at the University of Maine School of Law for several years, both as an employee for a while and then as a consultant in different roles. And, and I was able to kind of just act as like, I kind of saw that role as just being like the in-house journalist, like just going to the different departments and professors and students and, and finding out what was going on and then telling those stories. And instead of it being in the newspaper, it was on their website and social media and, and through other venues. So absolutely. That definitely helped to scratch <laughs> the itch of yeah. storytelling. And what types of clients were you working with? Again, because of my background with the courts and affairs, the, you know, the, the, the main school of law was, was a primary client. And also then I just started to do some consulting for lawyers and law firms, you know, Berman and Simmons was one of my big clients. And I just really enjoyed doing work for them because they represent and, and at the time just represented clients who had been really like badly hurt or wronged or damaged in some way, oftentimes by corporate malfeasance. And, and just corporate greed and lack of oversight. And that was, that, that's always kind of a theme that I've been looking for in my life is to, you know, try to make a living, obviously, you know, with a family and kids, but, but also be able to feel good about it. Yeah. 
So March of 2018 was really a, a day that changed everything for you. Can you tell us about what happened in March and and what sort of prompted you seeking diagnosis? Yeah, so I I've always been a really physical person. I you know played multiple sports, just really active physically. I love hiking and biking and and one example I always talk about is you know we heat with wood in the winter and I always love to just go out to the barn and or I like to cut and split the wood and then I go out to the barn and bring it in and so doing that kind of physical work has always been part of my identity but in the months actually looking back on it probably for several months leading up to March 2018 I started just getting more and more fatigued yeah and you know maybe instead of working for 4 hours on the wood I'd work for 2 and then I'd work for 1 and it just kept getting worse and worse. And I always, so like a typical guy, I didn't think anything of it. I, I had not gone to see a primary care physician in several years. I, I didn't, I wasn't having any, you know, checkups or blood work or anything. I just thought I was middle-aged, you know, I was 41. I had a, a business, you know, I was self-employed, busy fam. My wife's working full-time and our kids are growing up. And I just thought, number one, that that I was just hitting that point in my life where it was normal to get tired. And then number two is that, you know, I've always had some issues with, you know, anxiety and depression manageable, you know, nothing that like derailed me from being able to have a, a great family life and career, but those were there, you know, some anxiety and depression that was there in my past. And, and it's definitely common in my family. So I just thought it was mental health. You know, I thought I was just reaching 40 and I had some mental health issues. And just, I put it aside. And then finally, you know, in that leading up to that, to March, I just like, I would, I would walk up the steps at home and just feel my heart pounding. And, and it became like, I'd have to go back to bed. So finally I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like I can't, I can't maintain this anymore. So I called my primary care. I called, we did have a primary care physician who was an absolute amazing person. And I called her and I said, this is going on. And she said, we got to get you checked out. And so I had blood work done. And this is, so this is a moment I'll never forget is it was a Friday in March of 2018. And Sarah and I had actually pulled the girls out from school to just play a hooky day. And, and we went skiing at Shawnee peak. And I just remember that day, like, again, like just feeling utter exhaustion and, and also irritability and like a little bit of just like super anxiety. And it was just, it was just elevated so bad. And then that night, Friday night, I, I didn't have my phone on me. And then I looked and there was a message from my doctor and I listened to the message and she said, your blood work is abnormal. You have basically no iron in your system. You're anemic, you're iron deficient anemic, you know, so you need to call me. And this was on a Friday evening. Yeah. So, you know, when a doctor says, call me on a Friday night, it's usually never good. Right. So I remember sitting or standing in my driveway, kind of looking up at the stars and just being like, oh, please don't be something really bad. And I called her and, and she said, you know, have you been losing blood anywhere that you've noticed, like in your stool or anything? I said, no, I, I haven't noticed any blood loss. She said, for someone who's otherwise healthy, this usually is you're losing blood somewhere, probably in your gastrointestinal tract somewhere. So we need to get you in for a colonoscopy. And 
four days later, March 23rd, 2018, I had a colonoscopy. And even then the doctor who did the colonoscopy was kind of looking at me coming in. He's like, oh, we'll probably maybe find some polyps. Maybe you have the hemorrhoids. Maybe, maybe you're even celiac. Like there's something that's going to explain this. And he was very optimistic, you know, kind of laughed and joked around the whole thing. So, but then after the procedure, you kind of, I was kind of waking up from the, the fuzzy drugs that they give you. And we went in and Sarah and I went in and he closed the door and you could tell right away that it was not good. And he sat down, took kind of like a moment and just looking at him, like, what's the deal? And he said, you have a large mass in your colon. It's about nine or 10 centimeters. I'm going to need to refer you to a surgical oncologist and to a medical oncologist and to take the next steps. So you're going to need to have surgery. And I had heard these words. I'm like, he's telling me I need to see an oncologist. I have this mass. It was, but it was like, he didn't actually say cancer. So I, I'm like, are you telling me I have cancer? And he said, well, until I, we took biopsies of, of the mass and until the pathology report comes back, I can't say hundred percent, but yes, this is pretty certain that you have colon cancer and that, you know, that was a life-changing moment. And Sarah and I just kind of looked at each other and just, that's when legitimate physiological shock sets in. All the questions start flooding your brain. And then he wasn't able to answer much. And we just went out to the car. And I think our first question was just like, how, how on earth are we going to talk to our children about this? What was the diagnosis that the doctors eventually gave you? So at first it was stage three colorectal cancer, but then we learned pretty soon after that I was actually stage four colorectal cancer with metastatic disease. So in my case, my disease had spread um, through the lymphatic system or through the blood, possibly both from the colon to my liver. And so how long was it from having that initial conversation before you were able to get some of those answers and start getting treatment? Well, it's kind of backwards. Like I, I, I was feeling like I was going to see it like a medical oncologist and we'd come up with like a game plan and like I'd, I'd learn a lot more, but it, it was more like go see the surgeon. And we met with a couple of surgeons and I decided to have colon surgery at main med with Dr. Mayo, who's one of my heroes. And so April 4th, so this would have been less than two weeks right. after diagnosis. So we went ahead with the surgery and Dr. Mayo did an amazing job. She removed about a foot of my large intestine that had the, the tumor in it. And she removed, I think about 20 something lymph nodes from that area. And one of them tested positive for metastatic, you know, for cancer that had spread beyond. So it was in the lymph node and that's where we were. And then, and so then at that point I met with an oncologist and started getting a game plan for doing chemo. And so during this time, are you, I have to assume your wife, but is there anyone else you're relying on for sort of support and emotional support or venting support or whatever you yeah. did at that point? Yeah. I, was, I mean, again, like I don't even think I was processing it, processing any other emotions other than shock for that first couple months and just like get through, like, what do I do? Shock and action. So yeah, my wife, number one, just my rock through this whole thing. And then I would say, you know, my, so we have a, a tight knit group of friends really stepped up. I was like, yeah, whatever you need for the kids, whatever, you know, we had actually planned a vacation for that April break of that year. We were going to go down to somewhere. I think it was, I'm 
losing the details, but we're going to go down south somewhere. And our friends actually took our kids with them and their kids to keep them, you know, sort of keep them normal. And they went, took them on vacation while Sarah and I just dealt with doing what I needed to do to address this cancer. So you're going through treatment, you've had surgery, you're kind of learning what all of those next steps are. And this is a, it sounds like this is sort of a months long process as you're going through all of that. Yeah. I call that first period, the fire hose of information period, because I had no, no knowledge of that, that world, that field. So all of a sudden I'm just into the thrust into this, Sarah and I are thrust into this world where I'm a cancer patient and she's a cancer caregiver. And so it's just trying to learn as much as possible about what we do. And like, you have so many people kind of coming at you with different information and it's just hard to, the whole process at first is just completely overwhelming. Yeah. I would imagine just, the learning curve must be just incredibly steep. Absolutely. And you just le- you learn as much as you can and then just try to like shut off your brain at some points, just it's overload, but you just, you know, you do the best you can with the information available to you and yeah. just knowing your limitations, like as a human being, like you can't figure all of this out. Even now, four years in, I know a lot about colorectal cancer and I know a lot about my disease, but I mean, it's still just scratching the surface of the depth of knowledge. Sure. So, so yeah, I went through the colon surgery and then because of my lymph node being positive, I started three months of chemotherapy and then I did the three months. And at that point it was like, okay, we don't think it's spread. We think you're good. This is just going to be a couple months out of your life and you're going to just move on. But then three months later, I got another scan and that scan showed that that spot in my liver had tripled in size. So as you're going through these sort of months of diagnosis and shock and treatment and mm. kind of figure out what all of this is, what's happening with your company at that time? So, yeah, I pretty much had to just I had to just tell my clients, like, I'm I am not going to be working like I, I pretty much had to stop work at that point. And I'm just super lucky. I have to say this, like I am incredibly lucky to be, to have the support of my wife, Sarah in particular, because she works in a public school system and she had to carry us financially and through her insurance, like, because I was self-employed, I didn't have insurance of my own. And so I say that I'm lucky because a lot of people impacted by cancer just don't have that spouse support or personal support where they have good insurance to help them get through this, this, these times. So I was able to just say like, I, I can't work right now. I'm going to focus on my cancer treatment. And yeah, so the company just had to take a backseat. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to learn about what post diagnosis, mental health struggles Trevor was dealing with and how that prompted the start of a new company. We'll be right back. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. Trevor, if you wait till you're 100% feeling good to try to help others, you may never get that chance. Right. You, you, you may never have the opportunity to do that. So you got to just do it. We're back with Trevor Maxwell talking about his colorectal cancer diagnosis in 2018. 
and what that meant for his business. And then, of course, the treatment that he started dealing with and, and how it affected his family. So, Trevor, you you get this diagnosis, you're going through treatment, your work has to kind of take a backseat, which it sounds like was a work and a, and a career that you really were enjoying. You talked about you start struggling with some mental health issues. Uh, what, what was that? So when I learned that I actually was stage four with metastatic disease in my liver, my mental health kind of nosedived. And I started finding myself isolating and really started experiencing some crippling anxiety and depression. And so this would have been into the fall of 2018, into that winter, like I went into a really dark place and a lot of time there would be a lot of day, like me on a typical day that fall would be just a lot of perseverating living in my own head, really dwelling like anticipatory grief. Like I would just be like weeping like for hours. Like I thought I was convinced that I was going to die, but you know, I, I I'm online and I'm realizing that the five year overall survival rate for stage four colorectal cancer is less than 15%. And I'm seeing all these stories of people dying and it's impossible to avoid that. And, you know, that was part of it, but I think I was already like kind of predisposed to just like go into this really bad place. And, and yeah, so I just, I remember vividly like being on my knees in the living room by myself, like Sarah's at work, the girls are at school and I am just crumpled heap. Imagine this six foot three, 220, 230 pound guy in a heap on the floor, I was crushed. I thought I was going to die and that I was going to leave my family behind and that I was, you know, going to let them down and, and not be able to spend the decades with them that, that I wanted to spend. And so, yeah, I that was really as dark as it gets, you know, I was thinking I was a burden to everyone. I just wanted to go out into the woods and disappear. And I was convinced, you know, that my family would be better off without me. Now, of course, that doesn't reflect the reality and that's not what they would want. And, and it's not what I would want, but I was broken. I really was, I really was broken by my diagnosis and in a place that I thought I was never going to get out of it. So in the midst of this depression, you had told me that you had a really difficult conversation with your wife. Can you talk to us about what that was? You know, the mood in our house was grim. And based on me, really. So this conversation that you reference with my wife is kind of, I describe it as my Shawshank redemption moment. Time to get busy living or get busy dying. And we all have to confront that moment where we need to choose life or, or choose not to live. It, not like in a suicidal way, but just being checked out of life. And so the conversation that happened was this was right around Christmas time, 2018. I was a wreck, you know, as usual at that time. And my wife was kind of at her wits end. You know, she, she refused to give up on me though. Like she was just there for me, but she needed to give me some tough love. <clears throat> so we were having kind of a, <laughs> just a very intense emotional conversation. And I was telling her, you know, I'm just, I can't get out of this pit because I just cannot get over this idea that I'm going to die and, and leave my family behind. And I'm terrified that my daughter, that our daughters are going to remember me as sick. They're going to remember me as on the couch, on the bed, uh, in the hospital, 
going through surgery, going through chemo, that they're just going to remember this like sick person, that they're not going to really remember who I am. And Sarah, she kind of looks at me and she goes, I am not worried that they're going to remember you as sick. I'm worried that they're going to remember you as sad. It was a, a reflection on that place where I was of seeing me so broken and so sad and just saying like, I don't want them to remember you like this. And she, you know, so that conversation kind of went on and she's like, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a year to live or 50 years to live. We need you to be Trevor. We need you to be here. Yeah. We need you to be with us. We need you to be engaged in life. And, you know, I, I understand that you have this life threatening disease that very well could take your life soon, but we need to find a way to have joy in the face of that. And so did that prompt you to go looking for help in whatever form that was? Yeah. So I said to her, I remember saying that night, I was like, look, I cannot get out of this pit that I'm in by snapping my fingers. I know that I'm in a pit. I know that I'm broken. And I know that it's going to take work to get out of this. But what I can say is that I promise you, I will do, I will do whatever it takes. I will do the work. I will do whatever it takes to regain my mental well-being. Even as I continue to fight the cancer on the physical front, I will do whatever it takes to get my mindset back to where it needs to be. So where did you, where, where did you go to, what was there available for you to go find some help and support? So number one, I just started going online and I started reaching out to other colorectal cancer patients and caregivers and survivors. There are amazing groups online. So Colon Town is a Facebook community run by and, and populated by us CRC peeps. That's like one of our, our places. There are advocacy organizations, Fight CRC, Colorectal Cancer Alliance, Colon Cancer Coalition, and, and more. So I just started meeting people, meeting people online that were in similar circumstances. Like I can't just go out here in my normal life in greater Portland and hang out with a bunch of people in their early forties who have stage four disease or stage four colon cancer. Like there's not a ton of us, but when you go online, there, there are a ton of us. And so I started meeting other dads and other moms and parents of younger kids that were going through cancer. So number one, it was just meeting people who were in the same boat. And then number two, we're so thankful in Maine to have the Dempsey Center. So for anyone who doesn't know, so it was founded by Patrick Dempsey, the, the actor, and, and really in honor of his mother who passed away from cancer. And the Dempsey, what the Dempsey Center does is provides everything but the actual treatment for cancer. So all the holistic stuff around supporting cancer patients and their families, whether it's nutrition, exercise, counseling, individual counseling, group counseling, all, all those different things that you need to support you going through it, they have. And so I just reached out to the Dempsey Center. I was like, what can I, can I go to a class? <laughs> can I talk to people? Can I go to group? And, and I started accessing their services. And so really, and, and then I just started moving my body more. I started doing counseling, one-on-one -on -one counseling at the Dempsey Center, group group therapy, and all of those tools, Dempsey Center, exercise, meeting people online, started lifting me up out of that pit. And I have to say, the first step that I had to take to access those tools was to admit that I needed help, to say, I can't face cancer on my own. And so that is a huge barrier for a lot of people, and in particular, a lot of men going through cancer is to, is to get to that point where you realize that doing it on your own is not going to lead to a good place.
Yeah. So you've talked about that a lot about the kind of common theme as you were looking for help that men, not that there weren't opportunities available to help men, but just that either they weren't seeking it or that they weren't as open about their needs as others might be. So tell me a little bit about that. 100%. So in those spaces where you get help, it's generally at least three to one women to men, sometimes four to one, sometimes 80% women, 20% men. And it's very much, these are co-ed spaces, but they're very much dominated by women. And so part of me was just like, I can't be the only guy struggling with the emotional burden of cancer. Number one, like there has to be other Trevors out there. And then as I started talking to people and, and started really digging into that issue, it just became so obvious that men do need help. Men absolutely need, need help going through cancer and they need communities for a number of reasons. The way we are conditioned in culture, you know, mostly the way that we're brought up, the way that society, you know, thinks about this idea of manning up, right? That, that somehow men aren't supposed to need help, that you're just supposed to go through it and you don't need to talk about it. You just like, it's not helpful. Like in what other you know, world would, would someone be expected to go through this traumatizing, painful, like one of the toughest challenges you could ever face as a human, but you're supposed to do it on your own. Like that's crazy. And so at what point do you start feeling like maybe you can do something or have an effect on these kind of, to your point, generalities of how we've raised men to be and, and recognizing that maybe that's not the healthiest way to approach something like this? I think as patients, a lot of us have this idea that we want to help others and in some way like be advocates, but we have no idea how to get started. And, and when you're in the thick of it, I kept saying to myself, I'm not ready to help others because I, I don't feel good myself. Like I don't feel that I'm enough. I don't feel like I'm capable of helping others when I'm still kind of a hot mess. So again, I got to give credit to the Dempsey center because I finally was like, you know what, just start where you're at. Like Trevor, if you wait till you're hundred percent feeling good to try to help others, you may never get that chance. Right. You, you, you may never have the opportunity to do that. So you got to just do it. I reached out to the Dempsey Center and said, Hey, I'm, you know, I do communications, PR writing. Like, is there any projects that I can help you with? I started just doing some volunteer stuff with them. And then I started doing volunteer stuff with Colon Town. So I started getting involved in Colon Town's leadership and, and just learning the ropes a little bit about what it looks like to be a patient leader, what it looks like to to advocate for others going through it and to support them. And that, that was really how I learned about it. And then, and then I really started to focus in, you know, as I got those experiences, I started to think, wow, maybe I can lend my voice to this conversation, sort of be this bridge to saying like, Hey, you know, I've been there. This is what helped me. Uh, and I want to help be a, a guide or mentor for, you know, getting other guys out of isolation. So, all of that sort of volunteering and offering your services eventually is what turns into man up to cancer, which is, as you've described it, kind of a play on the words of you've got to man up to something. You've got to be tough. What is man up to cancer? Yeah. So late 2019, I just kept like that thought kept coming to me. It's like, all right, I got to solve the guy problem. What do I do? And again, Sarah, my wife was super encouraging. She's like, you have the abilities to, to make an impact for guys who are out there struggling like you were. And so I kept coming back to this man up idea. It was like in our culture, that phrase is so loaded. And at the time I happened to be just reading and watching a lot about wolves. Cause I, I kind of have this fascination with wolves. And I was like, 
if you're in a wolf pack, the lone wolf dies, the pack survives. Like, so in a wolf pack, if, if a wolf gets sick or gets injured and, and kind of tails off the back, the, the healthy wolves are going to circle that wolf and not let them just go off and die. Like they're going to support that wolf. They're going to guard him. And, and if that wolf, until that wolf regains his health and if that wolf dies they actually mourn so wolves are very social creatures they actually mourn their losses so i was like why why can't why don't we as men going through something like this behave more like that like isn't there more strength and protection and and knowledge and wisdom in a pack than on our own and so that's really when it clicked in i was like all right we got to have like the cancer wolf pack so when i so i had this concept right of man to cancer and 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 the message which is super simple. So man up to cancer inspires and encourages men to connect and avoid isolation during the cancer journey. Like that's it. But so I had the concept, but then it's like, what's the framework, right? How do you actually do that? How do you execute that? And at the time I was thinking like, I wanted to do a podcast at some point. I wanted mostly it was social media, like just getting on social media and being a role model and showing guys that you can be a guy's guy and still get counseling and still take care of yourself and do those things. Right. So man up to cancer, the, the way that it has come to be is that what it is right now is a weekly podcast, the man up to cancer podcast, a website, man up to cancer.com that has resources and just kind of home base my social media, which mostly is Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn that I use as that platform to just, to really just put out content lots of content around this mission and this theme. And then there's the Howling Place group itself. So the Howling Place is Man Up to Cancer's Facebook group. It's a private group for if you're a man who is a cancer patient, survivor, or caregiver, any type of cancer, any stage, you are welcome to join our Howling Place group. And I got to give a shout out to my right-hand man, Joe Bullock. So Joe Bullock is a stage 3B colorectal cancer survivor from Durham, North Carolina, who from day one was totally down with the mission. And he's now the lead admin actually of the Howling Place group. And through the two of us, you know, so basically I invited, I I launched the Facebook group and then asked Joe to be one of the admins at that point. And through the two of us, we just started bringing people in and we launched it New Year's 2020. So it's been a little over two years and it's just grown organically over that time people it just it's word of mouth people hear about it people come in we now have about 1600 men in the group from every state in the in the country a lot in canada the howling place is kind of like cheers it's like the pub where cancer guys go and everyone knows your name and you can just kick back and everyone gets it everyone know you know you can talk about you can go to vent You can go to just talk about your life. We are social support and just camaraderie and brotherhood and that place to go where you just want to kick back and shoot the, you know, what with um, other guys who are fate, who are impacted by cancer. And that's, so that's really kind of like the beating heart of man up to cancer is the group itself. And then there's the other stuff that I just do that is public facing. And you've, I've heard you describe it as a purpose driven company. So what does that mean to you? So I didn't know what what form man up to cancer would take at the beginning. It was kind of just a call to action, but I knew that I did not want to do a nonprofit. I didn't want to do a 501c3 because there's already so many cancer nonprofits. There's too many. 
it's like they're everywhere. And, and even in the colorectal cancer space, there's so many groups like just competing for funding and like they, a lot of them overlap and, 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 and mine's not a colorectal cancer group. It's all cancers, but the, in that spirit, like I just didn't want to be another cancer nonprofit fighting for dollars. And I definitely didn't want to ask my community to fund it. Like I didn't want to ask cancer patients to contribute like, Hey, we need money again. Cause we're a nonprofit. Like that's just a, that's a pattern I didn't want to get into. So I, I wanted to do another model. So really what I've decided to do is I already had Maxwell Media LLC, which is just a, a single member LLC that I was doing my PR work under. And so I just kind of folded Man Up to Cancer into that and and recrafted it so that I call it, you know, I, I say Man Up to Cancer is a purpose-driven company and an online community. And it's purpose-driven because any of the, basically I use a sponsorship model. So I, I partner with companies and organizations, a lot of them who are in cancer care or in that cancer world, who I partner with companies and organizations that provide a, de- a direct benefit to my people, to my community. For example, Natera is a diagnostics, diagnostics company. They do testing for different types of cancers. They have a blood test for colorectal cancer that I rely on to track my disease. And so I developed a relationship with them where they came on board and started doing some sponsorship for the podcast. But it's the sponsorship model where I have a community now and Natera wants to reach out to that community and, and you know, let them know about their tests. And I can feel good about it because I use the damn thing and I believe in that. So I'm looking for those relationships and then I can get that corporate sponsorship and I don't have to ask my community for dollars. So it's more of like a traditional media company in that way a traditional content company where it's sponsorships, ads, that sort of thing that really support what I'm trying to do. And it's not huge. Like it's, it's, it's not a bunch of revenue that I'm bringing in, but it's enough to add on to, you know, to, to try to get it to be sustainable. And I hope to, you know, knock on wood, if my cancer will stay at bay, I hope to continue to build that up so that I have multiple relationships that'll support what I'm the content that I'm creating and support the mission. So any revenue that comes in through those sponsorships, I put directly back into the mission, to the work that I'm doing. We have merch. So we have a shop and any revenue that comes in through the shop from people who are either in the group or outside of it, it's open to the public. I can take that revenue and then buy merchandise for people in my group, in the Howling Place who are struggling financially. Because a lot of people in our group have advanced disease and a lot of them have just been ruined financially from this. And so I can then, you know, help if they want a sweatshirt, if they want a hat, whatever, like I feel good about being able to provide that for them. And then they just feel, you know, when you have our stuff on, you just feel that belonging, you know, that sense of that sense of being part of a, a group that, that gets you and has your back. Yeah. You've got um, your pack of guys around you ready yeah. to fight for you. So that's the model. That's the, per, you know, so that's the purpose driven LLC. Like everyone just assumes if you're working in the cancer space, that you're doing a nonprofit. But I think there's another way to go about this and still be an influencer and still have a purpose-driven company without going the nonprofit model. Sure. I just want to get back to, you had mentioned the backpack program earlier. What is that? Yeah. So we just launched that this, this year. One of the things that I've been wanting to do for quite some time is to do a chemo backpack program. And so what it is, is, is a man up to cancer backpack filled with all kinds of comfort and practical items. 
So when you're going through chemo, a lot of times um, you have cold sensitivity. So you get a man to cancer beanie, you get a journal to, to write down your thoughts on, you get a fleece blanket, you get a water bottle, hydration tablets, lotion, all, all the kind of stuff that you might need to go through the chemo experience, you're going to get in this pack. So five packs a month go out to members of the Howling Place group who are going through chemotherapy. So super exciting because not only are we able to give the guys practical stuff to help them with chemo, but they know when they have this pack with them, with the, our logo on it, that they are carrying more than 1,500 guys with them into their chemo center. So it's very much that, yeah, that psychological piece of knowing that you're not alone when you walk in there. How are you today? How's your health today? So right now my health is actually good. I, 2021 was rough last year. I, so my disease, so I, I did, let me back up a little bit. I did the first liver surgery in November, 2018, I had a recurrence. And so I had another liver surgery in May, 2019. And then I had another recurrence. So at that point I went on immunotherapy because I have Lynch, I have this thing called Lynch syndrome, which predisposes me to cancer. I didn't know about it until I was diagnosed. But immunotherapy does really well for oftentimes for people with Lynch syndrome. So immunotherapy is just drugs that unleash your immune system to attack your cancer. So I was on that for about a year of being stable. And then my disease started to progress outside in my abdomen. So in the space between my organs and my abdomen, I started to have tumors kind of pop up. And so then this leads me into this past year when I did what I call kitchen sink chemo. It's like four different types of agents. It's, it's the strongest chemo that they can give anyone with colorectal cancer without actually killing them. <laughs> so, so I did this like nuclear chemo for like six months, which kicked my ass, but it really did an amazing job on my tumors in my abdomen. So those tumors really shrunk up to the point where I could do another surgery, but that's the goal. Like chemo is not going to cure anybody unless you're super like <laughs> There are asterisks, okay? Some people will, but most people aren't going to be cured by chemo. They're going to be cured by chemo plus surgery or chemo plus some other thing. So mostly surgery. So my tumors in my abdomen shrunk way up and I went to Mass General in September of last year, 2021, and had what's called a cytoreductive surgery. Basically, it's just they open up your entire abdomen, go in there and take out those tumors that have been growing and any other visible cancer that they can see. And then put you back together. And then I did some more chemo after that. And so it's been six months. And I am technically NED right now, which is no evidence of disease, which is like the holy grail for all cancer patients. So I'm feeling good. Like talking to you now, like wouldn't at a lot of times last year would not have even been possible. So I'm just, I'm trying to just soak it up. I'm struggling a little bit. (laughs) I got to admit with that anxiety piece again. And I'm doing my, I'm using my tools, but. We know that my chance of recurrence is super high based on metastatic disease spread out in my abdomen. Like it's 90 plus percent that I'm going to have another recurrence and that I'm going to need to do more things to keep extending my life. But right now I'm just focused on being here, being present, being as joyful as I can, living with purpose, doing my, my family stuff and doing my man up to cancer stuff. So that's my current health. And now that I have this kind of, I call it a hall pass. So we, a lot of us with stage four disease, we live on three month periods <clears throat> between our scans and our blood work. And right now I'm, I'm in the hall pass territory 
and who knows by the time when this airs things could change right <laughs> but but right now i'm on a hall pass where i'm just supposed to go live my life so it sounds like from what you're talking about with kind of the the wolf pack theme and, and bringing support for all these people in this community that you found really kind of had a reverse effect where it was the thing that helped you and kind of pulled you out of your darkest space and what you needed at that point so they it kind of both worked both ways yeah that's spot on i mean 100% i needed a purpose and i wanted to do something where i could show my kids especially that i got knocked down that that i was broken at one point but that i can get back up dust myself off and really do something that is special and that contributes to to helping others and that for me was that purpose and then on the flip side of that like you said like i also now get that support from that community like i go on there for support all the time if i'm having a rough day or if i'm having something i need to vent about i know that there's a group of guys that gives me unconditional love and and there's nothing that i can't say in there where someone will be like oh don't say that or you can't say like it's just you know, I'll get a lot of good feedback and some, and some good insights. And it's, it's a place of sharing that really supports me. Like I've never felt, I have never felt more support in my journey than I feel right now through my family, of course, number one, but then through my, my Wolfpack family, number two. Yeah. So what are your long-term plans for man up to cancer? Well, number one, I need to make, I really want to make it a mission that's sustainable, even if I pass away. So for the long-term mission of Man Up to Cancer, number one is I want to make it something that's sustainable so that if I do pass away, you know, before all of us, you know, of course, all of us want me to be around for a long time, but I'm realistic about my disease as well. And I've lost a lot of friends along the way. So if I do pass away in the next couple of years or, or whatever, I want Man Up to Cancer to continue as a mission. So I think right now it's about empowering others to get involved. I have, you know, this Wolfpack Leaders Program where I have 18 people across the U S and Canada, kind of, like I said, spreading the mission. And I want to just keep focusing on that. So that if I get sick again or pass away that, that man up to cancer can be something that continues on long after I'm gone. And so that's something, you know, that's real. That's something I need to focus on and put my effort into. And then if I, if I am able to beat the odds and, you know, I certainly plan on it. Like if that happens, if, if mother nature gives me that chance to stay around, I just want to keep responding to the needs of the community. Like I can't anticipate what those are going to be, but what I try to do with the podcast is respond to the pain or the issues or the things that people need help with. Like whether it's a show about intimacy and sexual health, or it's a show about blood testing, or it's a show about you know the caring for our emotional well-being like or finances and insurance like there's all these different subjects that come up in our group like repeatedly that are themes that we are struggling with as cancer patients and survivors and i want to produce content that helps people feel not alone and gives people some practical tools that they can use to help the help improve and and deal with those hardships that we all face and so that's it. And so as the community continues to grow and as people give me feedback, you know, it could evolve into more things. It could evolve into more programming. I'm open to collaborations with others. And what could it look like in the future? You know, maybe this model of purpose-driven company and the sponsorship model works for now, but maybe there's a different model to go to in the future. I don't know. So, so I guess that's a long way of saying, I'm not sure what Man Up to Cancer will look like in the distant future, but I want it to be here. 
I want it to fill a space. It has filled a space already in that place of men looking for community who are going through cancer. And I want it to continue to fill that space for years to come. So looking back on that conversation with your wife and her and your and her fear for how your children would see you, how do you think that your girls see you now? I think they're proud of me. I think that they look at what I'm doing and they smile. I think that they, they know that I'm having an impact on, they know I'm helping people and they know that I'm getting the help that I need at the same time. So I really think that they can, I think they are proud of me and I want them to continue to be, I want to continue to make them proud and to give them that example of life's going to come at you. It's going to knock you down. You may not get a challenge like mine, but you're going to get a challenge and you're going to get knocked on your ass. And, and it's okay to be down there. That that's the biggest thing too. Like it's okay to get knocked down. It's okay to feel broken and to get to that point. But then you always have a choice. You know, you always have the choice to, to stay down or to get up. And, and that's what I want to leave with them. No matter how long I live is I want to leave them with that idea that it's okay to break. It's okay to get knocked down, but you, you get up and you keep looking to make a difference. And so that coming from that place where I was, I'm feeling ashamed of myself and feeling like, like I would never be able to be that role model for my kids. It's definitely meaningful to be where I'm at now. So how can people learn more about Man Up to Cancer and get involved? Yeah, I think just come into manuptocancer.com. Just go to that home base. Like that's just the hub. Like from, from manuptocancer.com, you can access the podcast. You can access the, you know, my blog, which needs to be updated and you can access the social media. So either going to the website or just going to, if you're on Instagram, if you're on Facebook, just searching up map to cancer in those spaces. And there's different ways to get involved. Like as a guy, if you're, I want to say this, like if, if any guys out there are listening and they're struggling with the impact of cancer, just, just listen to a podcast or just check out the content. You don't have to join the group. Like, and then if you feel like you want to join the group and check that out, then the door is always open, but man up to cancer is here for people on their terms. And then I'm always open too. So Trevor at man up to cancer.com. I'm definitely open for people to just email me, just make an introduction. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And so I just want to end with, do you have any words of advice or thoughts for somebody who may be facing a diagnosis or have a loved one that has received what you very well explained was the most shocking moment of your life and going through that diagnosis and just not know where to turn or where to go or what the first steps are. I think the biggest piece of advice is to just find your communities. There are communities out there for everyone, whether it's cancer specific, whether it's across all cancers, but whether it's the Dempsey center or whatever resources you have, like there are resources, there are communities. And, and so if it's made up to cancer or others, just find a community or communities that lift you up, fill your cup, make you feel like you're not alone because that feeling of isolation and feeling like you're the only one going through this, that's real. And I remember it vividly. And, and also just to say to anyone out there who feel, who may be in that pit right now, maybe you're in that mental health pit of feeling so anxious and depressed and feeling like you're never going to dig out of that. I just want to tell those people that you can, and you will emerge from that. But you won't do it in isolation. You got to reach out to people. You, you've got to, even at your deepest, even in the darkest moments, 
you if you make that one call or make that one outreach to to someone for support and just admitting like you need help and you want to get help the the universe is going to respond by lifting you up man like you will get better it is possible i've been there it is absolutely possible to get better from the mental health burden of going through a life-threatening illness this has been a production of main biz Find out more about this podcast and other MainBiz media products at mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. The MainBiz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Mason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. Subscribe to the MainBiz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.